I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Episode 3, Saving Lives and Ex-Wives. Welcome back to the story of our narcissistic Lamborghini-driving barrister, Peter Lavac. And they're his words, not mine. Well, all my friends reckon that I'm a narcissistic egomaniac, so it must be true. In the last two episodes, we heard from a bloke that had his girlfriend stolen by Peter while he was at war. While I was in uh, Vietnam fighting my, my queen and country, you were banging my girlfriend. And we've heard stories of Peter, the pro wrestler, Peter, the Lothario, and Peter... Actually, let's let his mate Bill explain that part. It's been a one-sided love affair. <laughs> no, he's a great bloke, actually. He's just got to not take him all that seriously, you know? Bill's not wrong, but in this episode, we thought we might give the barrister bashing a break and actually hear from the Lambo lawyer himself about some of the more astounding things that have happened in his life. Things like when Pete worked as a bouncer at a nightclub in Sydney's Hilton Hotel. I was working my way through law school. I was working there as a nightclub bouncer. And one night, this was the earlier Hilton before it was refurbished, I was posted outside the door of the George Adams Bar, which was just up the stairs from the Marble Bar. So I was at the door of George Adams Bar checking people coming in, make sure they're properly dressed and not affected by alcohol or drugs. And this guy came towards me, he looked a bit strange and odd, and I suspected he might have been either intoxicated or under the influence of drugs. So I stopped him and I said, mate, I can't let you in. Um, I think you've had something, um, come back another time. He, he didn't answer, he just walked right towards me, opened his coat jacket, he had a gun stuck in his waistband, he reached for the gun, he pulled it out, and my wrestling instincts and reactions kicked in. I was at the top of my game at that time wrestling, and I grabbed his wrist with my left hand and knocked the gun out of his hand with my right hand, Then I grabbed his elbow, spun him around so that his back was to my front. Then I grabbed him low around the waist in a wrestling move. I picked him up high, which is called a suplex, and I slammed him down hard on his back. There was a marble, marble floor. He hit his head on the marble, which knocked him out. So I picked up the gun took it over and and handed it to the bottle shop manager, told him to hide it 
in the drawer so no one could get at it. Then I went back and stood on the guy's throat so he couldn't get up. Cops were called. They were there very quickly in about five minutes. Heavily armed cops with flak jackets and everything. He was hauled off to the police station. I had to go and make a statement. And when I finished my statement, all the adrenaline had worn off and I was shaking like a leaf. So I realised I could have been shot or someone else shot. We went to court. He had a record as long as your arm for violence, firearm offences. And he's locked up for several years. At, 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 uh, this was at Central Magistrates Court. I had to give evidence against him. That's a fair story. You're working as a bouncer, dealing with the occasional dickhead, maybe not with a gun, but you'd have to expect the odd rumble as a doorman in the mid-80s. What about that one time in court when Peter had to save a judge's life? I was working for Legal Aid at the time. I hadn't been in the game long. And I was at Darlinghurst Court one day and we're sitting there before a judge named Kenneth Torrington. He's an old, frail-looking bloke. And the bar table was a very long table which ran from the the judge's bench at one end of the table and the prisoner's dock right at the other end. And all the lawyers and barristers sat around each side of the table. Anyway, this guy was being sentenced by Torrington for a string of armed robberies and Torrington was telling him what an evil piece of work he was and he's going to lock him up forever and throw the key away. And the prisoner suddenly spat the dummy and he jumped out of the dock onto the bar table. From the bar table he jumped onto the floor and started sprinting towards the judge, screaming, I'm going to kill you, you old... All the cops in security court at that time were sound asleep. They're sitting on their hands. They didn't even realise what had happened. I was the last guy sitting between him and the judge. I was right at the end of the bar table under the bench and I saw him running towards me. I jumped up, grabbed him low around the hips, picked him up high, slammed him on his back, knocked all the wind out of him. Then I got him in submission chokehold, so I had him fully under control. Meanwhile, the cops and security suddenly woke up, realised what was happening, and we were buried in a sea of blue uniforms like a rugby scrum. They dragged him down the cells, and I became the judge's very best friend. He dived under the bar table. He absolutely shit himself. Every lawyer who was in court at that time dived under the bar table. Don't believe the story about Peter jumping on the bar table dropping a thug on the floor who was trying to kill a judge? I didn't either. So let's fact check that with the barrister that Peter was assisting on that day in court, Mel Bloom. The judge, he said, look, before I pronounce sentence, have you got anything to say? Astell stood up in the dock and said, yes. Astell, sorry, my tongue didn't say, what have you got to say? He said, you're a I'm going to get you. And with that, he jumped out of the dock onto the bar table, and Astor jumped onto the bar table, and the bar table was quite wide, and I don't know what the security were doing, we were asleep, and before we know it, Astor was dancing up and down on the bar table towards uh, uh, the judge. The next thing I could see was that Astor used the judge's associate's head or shoulder as a step to try to get to the judge. He got within about a, that's a foot of the judge's throat before the judge leapt off the bench. At that stage, 
the next thing I saw was Astell flapped off the bar table and Peter Lovac, who was instructing me, grabbed hold of him from uh, behind him, got him in the sort of bear hug uh, from behind. It seemed to slam him down on the ground and subdued him. That's amazing. That's exactly how Peter tells it. And I always thought that maybe Peter gave it a little bit of GST or added a little bit of flavour to it. But it seems like what you've just told me is exactly the same story. It doesn't need any flavour or geeing up. That's exactly uh, what happened. And um, uh, I think in those days too, what was the great worry? But in those days, judges, uh, sorry, uh, the police uh, had firearms in court. And the great worry was that, you know, some lunatic cop would produce a gun and uh, it would have been a shooting gallery. I think that's what Tristan was. It's not all full Nelson wrestling moves for the Lambo lawyer. He's had his fair share of tragedy. Let's step back to the gym and the trampoline lady. After Peter and the trampoline lady got close on the rooftop, things changed for Peter. Not long after we christened the ledge, we started spending more time on the ledge than we did in lectures. And as a result, um, she got pregnant uh, with twins. And as a result, we both failed all our exams. I was doing medicine. I failed medicine. Third, I was doing second year medicine. I'd repeated first year. She was doing pharmacy. We both dropped out of uni. We were very young and... Um, I was about 19, 18, she's about 17 or 18, and we couldn't even afford to support ourselves, let alone twin boys, so we put them up for adoption, and they were adopted by a doctor in Thoreau down the south coast. He had a family of his own, his own biological kids, and he'd taken in a number of other kids from um, uh, adopted kids. So he gave the boys a good home and gave them a good upbringing. How did you feel about that at the time? Well, I was re- I was happy and relieved that they got a good home, mm. but also missed them, and I was very curious as to how they were they turned out. But up to the age of 18, you're not allowed to contact kids who have been adopted out. Once they turned 18, the law allows you to do that. So once they turned 18, I hired private detectives to track them down. They found them pretty easily. Uh, Letters went backwards and forwards. Their adoptive mum and dad were a bit pissed off that I'm coming along and, you know, trespassing on their lives uh, after I'd abandoned them when they were babies. But eventually they softened. More letters went backwards and forwards, photographs. And eventually the adoptive mum and dad told the boys I was looking for them and they were interested in meeting me. So ultimately a meeting was set up. They came to Sydney and we had lunch in um, a floating restaurant at Rose Bay. It was a terrific reunion and we became very good mates. It wasn't like father and sons because I wasn't there for their upbringing. Their real mum and dad were their adoptive mum and dad. Mm. They were there when they were sick. They were there when they needed help. I was their biological father, not their everyday father. Mm. So we became mates. It was like an older mate with two younger mates, and we had a terrific relationship. I think it's hard to judge someone, unless, of course, you've walked in someone else's shoes. You might have an opinion on Peter and his girlfriend's choice, but you also might agree that making decisions of this magnitude at a young age are pretty tough. The next part of this story is sad, 
and it may be triggering for some people, but it was important to be able to tell the whole story and not sanitise it. Do you still have contact with them now? Well, very sadly, they're both dead. Um, Back in, I think it was 2007, Mark died. He committed suicide. He was um, schizophrenic, which he inherited from his mother, the girlfriend at uni. She's schizophrenic also. And he's supposed to be on medication to control it. And he wasn't taking his meds. He went up to the local railroad tracks and that's how Mark died. And his brother? His brother, Roderick, three years later, almost to the day, he had a very routine minor sinus operation to clear some infected sinuses, which is a Mickey Mouse operation. Doctors do it every day without any problems or complications. Uh, Roderick got complications. He got an infection during the surgery, which developed in a septicemia. And after he'd been discharged, um, he died in his sleep from a massive heart attack. So both twins dead within three years. No parent should ever have to bury their kids. It should be the other way around. It was a pretty tough time, very devastating, yes. Do you still talk to the kid's mother? Yeah, yeah. We've stayed in touch over the years. She's got her own cross to bear. She, um, her life hasn't been easy. After we broke up, after the twins were born, um, she married a number of times, but not successfully. She had other kids by other guys. When we were at uni together, she was the most stunning girl on the whole campus. We'd be walking hand in hand. Guys would stop in their tracks and swivel around to get a second look. That's how gorgeous she was. But with the meds, her weight ballooned up to about 120 kilos. And that was a side effect. And I once asked her, I said, look, does this bother you, the, the weight that you've put on? She says, well, look, I've got no choice. If I don't take the meds, I'm insane. If I take the meds, I blow up. I'd rather be sane. So that was the choice she had to make. And on top of that, she's got another problem now. She's got MS. So she's in a wheelchair and she'll most likely die with MS. These are not the only children Peter had. He had another son, a son that he was close to. But all of that has since changed. He's my son from my first marriage. From your first marriage. And what's your relationship like with Grant? It was pretty good up till the time he got married. Uh, We had a terrific relationship. When I went to Hong Kong, uh, he used to come up to visit me there. I took him on holidays all over the world. Went to the Philippines, we went diving together, we went surf ski paddling together, we'd pump iron in the gym together. We're the best of mates. And then he married his wife, and uh, we've been estranged for several years now. And what makes it worse, um, they've had a baby two years ago, uh, two years ago this month, and I've never met her, and I probably never will. And this podcast and any film we make is going to be dedicated to her so that she will know that I left a few footprints on this planet so that she would be proud of me. There it is again, that dichotomy that is Peter Larvac, one part egomaniac, 
one part granddad who wants to see his only grandchild and wants to leave his own set of footprints. One thing that I've come to realise about talking with Peter and the people who both like him and hate him is he's not the sort of bloke you easily forget. Like his mate Paul Thompson from the uni days who remembers when he first met Peter. I met Peter at university um, back in, um, gosh, when was it? In the 60s. And um, I met him I met him through the gym at Sydney University. Peter at the time was, I think, in first or first year medicine or second year medicine. I think he was a year ahead of me. I was doing an arts degree. So, yeah, we, yeah, we got on reasonably well, I assume. He was... Uh, you know, reasonably friendly. Then we, well, we didn't become friends straight away, but we did. We were friends for 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 a, for a while at university. I suppose I was at a stage where you know I was uh, fairly vulnerable myself. So I think um, Peter tends to radiate towards people that he thinks that are vulnerable, and so he it makes him look a little bit better. I think um, that doesn't sound very pleasant, but I think that's how it works. He used to enjoy, I think he enjoyed going around with a group of guys where it was clearly he was the, the leader, if you like, put it that way, you know, and, um, you know, that made him look good, that in his opinion made him look good. When you get to know Peter, you, you, you realise very quickly that it's all about Peter. I just, I just find him, well, quite frankly, I just find him boring and I, let me say I admire his athletic achievements, but... As a character, I find him very unpleasant and, uh, you know, as I say, boring because um, it's all about Peter. He's not the slightest bit interested in any anything about you or anyone else. So that's how I see him. The last conversation with him, he, because I didn't do what he wanted, he abused me, called me a little weasel So because he didn't get what he wanted So I, and then slams the phone down on you. So I just find him a very un. Quite, just let me put it that way. I just find him a very unpleasant character. Okay, this might feel weird to ask Paul, but let's do it anyway. Does Paul reckon that Peter has any good traits? Well, as I say, I, I think he's very accomplished in his life. I mean, you know, I I don't take away any of his achievements. I think he's he's clearly had a, a pretty stellar criminal legal career. He 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 was a very good wrestler. He he tried everything in his life, you know, like he's, uh, he's what he's been a private detective. He's been a, um, uh, he did a little bit of professional wrestling for a while. He's, uh, I think he's been very accomplished in his life. I mean, it's just that, um, you know, I, I, I find, uh, I find associating with him unpleasant. Throughout the recording of this podcast, I regularly spoke to Peter either through his good mate Bobby or randomly Peter would call me out of the blue to give me another contact or just to have a chat. Like any good podcaster, we record everything. And this is just one of those moments when I call Peter to have a chat. Hello. Fantastic, fantastic. Hello. Hello, Hello. Peter. Who is it? Who is it? Jay. Who is it? It's Jay. Oh, Jay, g'day, mate. How are you? Thanks for returning my call, mate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Where are you in a nightclub? 
No, no, I'm driving the Lamborghini. We're going up to uh, Westhead to do a bit of high-speed cornering with a mate. Oh, fantastic. I, need, I, need, I feel the need for speed. I need an adrenaline here. Let's let Peter get back to the high-speed cornering and the doof-doof music in the Lamborghini, and we'll see you next episode where Peter talks about the other love of his life. Not him, his wife, Yonder. Oh, she's fantastic. She's my best friend. She's my soulmate. She's very strong. She's independent, gentle, warm, loving, supportive. Uh, everything any man had ever wanted in a woman. Is she allowed to drive the Lambo? No. No one. The insurance only covers me.